In looking over your um, information sheets and to see what kind of experience uh, each of you has had <clears throat> and what kind of Dharma exposure and practices you may have done, we could see that there's a wide variety of uh, techniques and understandings and teachings and different traditions that you all have many of you have um, sampled. And so as a way of affirming all that you have had exposure to and to give you some connection from what you have done and know to what we're doing here, I want to speak tonight about what I call the yogi's job. Our teacher, Saito Tejaniya, has identified three jobs for the yogi on a retreat like this. The first is to hear what the right view or the skillful view of understanding the mind, Dharma practice, the nature of insight, the nature of liberation, to understand what the skillful view is. And I say what the skillful view is because there are many ways you can look at what we're doing here. There's many ways of understanding what we're trying to do and the benefit of doing it. But maybe the most effective, efficient, or skillful way of understanding it is what leads to the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Can we understand our experience in a way that we can be free of suffering? The second job for a yogi is to be aware to learn how to cultivate awareness, to understand what awareness is, and to cultivate it, and to clearly recognize the difference between a moment of awareness and a moment of non-awareness. And the third job is to learn the benefit and how to sustain the continuity of that awareness. So it's not, that, it's not that difficult. We're not talking about a major career shift for anybody, whatever you've done for Dharma practice. We're just talking about how do you understand your practice, how do you develop awareness, and how do you sustain it? So the first job is to hear and understand kind of logically at least, uh, or at least be open to hearing and trying to understand what the right view is. Now I want to put the right view, what's called right view or skillful view, in the context of the Buddha's teachings. Because we are teaching from the understanding of the Buddha and the Buddha's liberation from a tradition of practice that is current in Burma. The Buddha when he articulated his deepest realization of the nature of reality, he 
encoded his understanding in his first teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And essentially the Four Noble Truths is that there's suffering in life. And the second Noble Truth is it's caused by craving. The third is that it is possible to end craving and therefore to end suffering. And the fourth Noble Truth is the path to be developed to realize the end of craving and the end of suffering. In that fourth Noble Truth, or in that Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha suggested or prescribed for reaching or realizing the end of suffering, there are three trainings. And the first training is a training in exercising restraint so that we don't speak or act carelessly in a way that causes harm to ourselves or others. And we're, doing, we're practicing that training here by taking the precepts daily and trying to live within the guidelines of non-harming that the five precepts uh, asks us to train in. The second training of the Noble Eightfold Path is a training in, it's called samadhi or concentration. It's really a training of the mind. It's not just purifying your speech and behavior, but it's purifying your mind of the defilements or the kalesas, the things that torment the mind. And we do that by being mindful. And most of the practices that you've done are just that, to establish mindfulness in some way, to be mindfully aware moment by moment in a way that keeps the defilements out of the mind, that keeps the mind free from fear, anger, jealousy, depression, anxiety, stress, the whole kit and caboodle. The third training in the Eightfold Path is a training in purifying our understanding. Purifying our speech and behavior saves us from causing trouble with one another. Purifying our mind allows us to feel a little calmer, a little more uh, still and stable in our life. But conditions change all the time and we never know just when we're going to get caught up in a, the tsunami of our life and get swept away in unskillful thoughts speech, action. And so we really need to probe deeper into the mind and reach deeper into the mind to purify our mind of understanding, wrong understandings. And this practice has two elements. Right view, how to understand things, and right thought, how to think skillfully about whatever it is you're thinking about. So we can see that right view or the skillful view of reality is an essential ingredient. It's maybe the foundational ingredient of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path for realizing the end of suffering. This is not just some good idea that somebody came up with. The Buddha put it first 
in the list of the eight factors of the noble of the noble path that we need to start with the right view the skillful view of things as we undertake our dharma practice and so it has skill right 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 view or skillful view has a a pretty high pedigree if you will or it's a pretty high on the you know to-do list or um, it's up there The knowledge of the right view, the knowledge of the skillful view of life, dharma practice, meditation, the mind and the body, the nature of insight, the nature of liberation is important, vital, so that we practice skillfully. If we don't understand why we're practicing, we can make a tremendous amount of effort wrongly or trying to achieve something that isn't particularly skillful or useful. So we really need to understand why are we doing what we're doing? How do we understand the nature of the mind and the body? What, what's this insight or vipassana all about anyway? And what is liberation? And if we don't have at least some idea of what the Buddha was pointing to, we can spend, well, years, decades, lifetimes, if we're not careful, uh, cultivating all kinds of wrong views and not purify the mind at all. So this development of the right view or the wisdom qualities of the mind relies on three elements. It relies on having the right information, getting the right information from, in this situation, us, and what you read in the book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough, and any other Dharma information, skillful information for understanding your experience, understanding your practice, understanding the path of practice. But this kind of information is something that we acquire from someone else. You acquire it from me in speaking tonight. You acquire it from Saito Utejaniya by reading the book. You acquire it from Franz this afternoon as he talked about mindful movement and Carol and her answering of questions. And so it takes a pretty steady stream of hearing right view, skillful view, to begin to realign or bring your own understanding into alignment with the way the Buddha understood reality. Then the second element of right view is to think about what you've heard intelligently. We can hear, you can read the book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough, and just leave it at the eye door. 
You know, whatever you read doesn't go in, it doesn't, attach, doesn't affect how you practice, doesn't mean anything, it's just kind of like entertaining. Or you can listen to this talk and, and forget everything I said, not take anything from it into your practice. And so, what good is it if we don't hear or read, understand, and then apply it through thinking about it and applying it skillfully in situations in our practice where it's useful or helpful or necessary in order to practice correctly. And we need to think about it because sometimes you hear things in, from different teachers or different traditions and it just sounds, excuse me, uh, a little bit wacky, a little bit illogical, a little bit like, what are they talking about? And if we overreach and try to understand what is beyond our own capacity, we can really get out there with wrong views, wrong understanding, doing, trying to do all kinds of stuff in our practice or to our minds that is not indicated by the teachings if we understood them correctly. So we want to we want to listen carefully, read carefully, and understand what it is that you understand and recognize what you don't understand. And for now, what you don't understand, just let it go. Just if it doesn't resonate with you, it's not important for you. But what is important is what you understand, what you can see in your own practice that this is relevant to, towards, or about. And then to think about, is this logical? Is this rational? Does this make sense? Is there some way that I can actually use this information in my practice? And if there is, then do it. And if there isn't, or you can't figure out how to, or it just sounds too exotic or too esoteric or too subtle, forget it. Forget it. That's not for you for now. Maybe later it'll be for you. Maybe never. That's not the point. The point is to use what is useful and valuable for you now. So we have right information that we think about intelligently and then with awareness practice like we're, we've been developing today, just paying attention to our experience through the lens of the information that we've heard or gathered along with applying it all intelligently, we begin to understand our own experience. We begin to gain some insight into, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way it is in, in my experience. This is the way my mind works. This is the way my mind gets caught up in suffering or the way I see suffering come about or the way I understand why I'm so you know, unhappy in different situations. Or we begin to understand also how it is that we are freed from distress of one sort or another. And so we really gain this penetrating insight into our own experience because we have the right information, we do apply it intelligently, and through the awareness of our own experience, we gain this wise understanding. So if information the right information is so important in practice. What is it that we need to know? 
in order to practice effectively. First, we need to understand what practice is all about. What is the skillful way of understanding practice, period? Just Dharma practice. And then what is the skillful way of understanding this mind and the body? We have, we have many ways of understanding the mind and body. You know, there's, there's all kinds of biological and genetic and cultural, socioeconomic. There's all kinds of ways of understanding how we got where we are. They're helpful and useful for some activities in life. But for Dharma practice, we need a different view, a different understanding of the mind and the body in order to practice to liberate the mind from suffering. We also need to understand what is the skillful way or the right view of insight practice. What is the power of insight? What is insight anyway? What is Vipassana? And how does it do its work? And fourthly, what is the goal? What is the goal of all of this effort that we make and all this practice? What is the right view of the Buddha's realization of the end of suffering? How are we to understand that in our own life, in our experience today? Sariputta was the second only to the Buddha in the development of wisdom. And he was an extraordinary uh, fellow with a penetrating insight and just really could articulate and elaborate on something that the Buddha said in kind of a crisp way. He could elaborate on it to uh, infinite degree in just a lot of detail. And he was asked by some monks one time, what does it take to establish right view, skillful view, in our mind? And he said there's two things. First, you need to hear what the right view is from someone else. And secondly, you need to practice awareness diligently. Now that first one, you need to hear what the right view is from someone else, kinda, kinda it, can, it can push against and grate against our sense of our own power of reasoning and thought and logic and knowledge. We're pretty, we're pretty smart cookies, you know. We got a pretty good education. We know how to think for ourselves. We can look at things and understand them for ourselves. But the Buddha said, or Sariputta confirmed, that this understanding of liberation from, the, from suffering, not possible to figure out yourself. Not possible. It's only a Buddha who can do that for himself without having heard about it from anyone else. It's that subtle, or that profound, that elusive, that challenging, really. So luckily for us, the Buddha is, and the Buddha's teachings and the Buddha's practices are still alive in our time, and we can hear them from those who've heard it from others 
all the way back to the Buddha. You can follow the line of the, the tradition of the monastic tradition back to the time of Buddha who told Sariputta, who told other monks, and that, has, that understanding has been handed down to, for 2,500, 2,600 years to arrive at our teachers, all of them, and to us, and now to you. So it's important to hear what it is. So what is the right view of Dharma practice? Why do we practice the Dharma? Why do we hear the Dharma? Why do we listen to the Dharma? Why do we practice the Dharma? Why do, what's the benefit? And how do we practice anyway? The simplest articulation of the value of Dharma practice is that we practice the Dharma in order to enhance and cultivate wholesome qualities of heart that are already within us. And in the process, we tend to minimize or eliminate unwholesome qualities of heart that are also already within us. That's it. That's about as simple as you can get. Why do we practice? To cultivate wholesome states of mind and to minimize the unwholesome states of mind all of which are, mm, reside in potentiality in our heart, in our mind. And all of us know that there are times when we get really irritated, we get fearful, we get anxious, we get frustrated, depressed. Nobody's got to convince us of that. But we also know that there are times when we're very generous, we're very kind, we're very understanding, patient, loving, humanitarian, compassionate. And these qualities of mind, both the wholesome and the unwholesome, seem to arise adventitiously, quite spontaneously. Well, Dharma practice is to understand how to cultivate the wholesome and how to minimize the unwholesome. That's what Dharma practice is. The second um, right view of practice is it really does matter what we do with our time. It really does matter. Now we've been practicing here almost 24 hours. What have you done with your time today? Well, maybe more than the days leading up to today You've practiced more Dharma. You've practiced more wise attention. You've practiced more awareness, more calmness of mind, less stimulating of unwholesome states of mind. It really does matter. It matters because the training of the mind, the cultivating of wholesome qualities, is a, it can't be anything but a very gradual development. You just can't change the momentum of the mind overnight. And so we really need to bring a long enduring mind to this, to this uh, process of transforming the mind from its sometimes unskillful uh, eruptions to less of them and more wholesome states of mind. And it just takes a kind of a persevering continuity 
with the clear understanding that gradually, if you walk in the fog long enough, you'll get soaked. Even though you don't notice it, you don't feel the raindrops, you're not, you don't need an umbrella, but if you walk in the fog, you're going to get wet. Same thing with the Dharma. If you just immerse yourself in the mist of the Dharma, in Dharma practice, and Dharma influence, you'll eventually get Dharma soaked. The third understanding of Dharma practice in the context of this retreat, in the development of awareness, the field of our attention is our own body and mind. It's not what's going on out there. It's not what's out, what you've heard or read from other teachers. We're not trying to confirm anything out there. We're just turning our attention towards our own experience. Real, what is the phenomena of this body? What is the phenomena of this mind? And paying attention to that. That's the field of the work. So when you find yourself over the coming days, you know, kind of wondering about something you read in Tricycle or Psychology Today or Buddha Dharma magazine or the newspaper or Oprah's column or something. Fun, entertaining, distracting, but not Dharma practice. Okay. We really need to pay attention to our own body and mind because that's where we're going to see the truth of our life right here. It's while we can read about the statistics of our condition, you know, being a male in America, or being a female in America, or being of certain age, certain temperament, whatever, there's all kinds of statistics you can read about yourself. But it's not you. The only thing that's really you is what you experience in your own body, in your own mind. The fourth right view of Dharma practice is that meditation is the work of the mind. While we do sometimes assume sitting posture, we do sometimes do formal physical training like uh, Franz was offering this afternoon. There can be a, form, a certain formality to that physical training. It is really just the vehicle for training and becoming aware of the mind. All that we're doing here is working with the mind. Yes, we have a body and we have to work with it or through it, but it's not primarily a physical exercise that we're doing, but it's really a training and a development of the mind. What we know with the mind is called the object. The object can be the breath, the rising, falling, the in-breath, out-breath. It can be a sound, it can be a sight, a sensation, a thought, a mood, a mental state, an emotion. Whatever you know, or whatever can be known by the mind, is called the object. So you'll hear us talking about what's the object of your attention. Is it sensation in the body? Is it a thought in the mind? Is it a, a mental state? Is it a sight, a sound? So these are some of the right views of Dharma practice in general. Now we're here practicing meditation, so I want to talk about 
the right view or the skillful views of what we're doing here, the meditation. An important understanding of this meditation practice is that whatever you observe, whatever you feel or experience in the body or the mind is totally natural. It's never the wrong thing. It's not a mistake. It is a totally natural thing to occur due to its own causes and conditions. You may not understand it. You may not like it. You may not have, never have seen it before. You may be bothered by it, but it's not accidental. It's natural. Everything about this body is just the unfolding of nature. Everything about the mind is equally just the unfolding of natural elements, the natural activity of the mind, the natural conditioning, uh, the unfolding of conditioning in the mind. Well, this has a significant and powerful implication. It's not about you. <laughs> this body and this mind is not about you. It's about nature. It's about the elements of nature in their natural unfolding. This addition of it's all about me is maybe the most significant wrong view that we're suffering under. But you know what? This body and mind will run themselves quite well without you. Really. You just watch. You, you, you know, the body does its own thing. It gets tired when it wants to sleep. It's, you know, the mind thinks what it wants to think. You know, the body's got to go to the bathroom. You don't tell it when it needs to go to the bathroom. You don't tell it how to go to the bathroom. It's got its own agenda, right? You know, you can't tell the mind to be happy because it's got its own unfolding. You can wish it to be mindful, but good luck. How'd you do today? <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious once you start looking at what's going on here, how little actual control we have of the mind and the body. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, you sit down with all good intention and all sincerity, and you ask your mind or you tell your mind to be aware. <laughs> Does it happen? Not for very long. Why? Well, it's not, it's not all about you. The mind is not yours. But while the mind is not yours, you're responsible for it. Whatever happens in the mind, you've got to take care of it. Because if you don't take care of the stuff that comes up in the mind, you can really make yourself miserable. This natural unfolding of the body and the mind, this is the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the way it is, the way things are. It's the truth. The Dharma means the truth. It means the, the way things are. It means the natural order of things. And what we see, and when we pay attention and observe this mind and body, is we see the Dhamma. This is the way it is in the mind and body. But it takes some persistent attention to get it because we have so many mistaken views about this mind and body. 
Mistaken in the sense that they don't lead to the end of suffering or they're unskillful because they don't lead to the end of suffering. Everything that arises is a natural process of the mind and the body. Right view. Second right view of meditation is that in every moment something is being known. The mind has been incessantly churning away since birth at least, or conception, or even before that, if you understand what that's all about, uh, knowing something moment after moment, and there's no rest. Even when you sleep, the mind is still churning away, keeping this body alive, responding to stimuli in the environment, massaging content from the day into dreams. What's that got to do with you? I mean, it's just, it just happens, doesn't it? Okay. In every moment, the mind is knowing something. It can now, any one of the six senses, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thought. And thought is a pretty rich field. Thought of beliefs, assumptions, plans, memories, perceptions, uh, all kinds of things are known by the mind. As we begin to observe the unfolding of the mind and the moment-by-moment -moment, uh, experiences that are being known, it's as if we, I like to sometimes relate it or imagine it's like, you know, you walk into a museum and way across the foyer is a huge tapestry on the far wall and from way across the foyer, you look at it and you see a picture of, you know, two medieval women sitting across the table where there's a bowl of fruit on it having a conversation. You know, that's the narrative of the tapestry. And you walk across the foyer and as you get closer to it, you lose the perspective that it's this huge tapestry and suddenly you're just at the table with the two women and the bowl of fruit because it's so big and you're so close. And then you get a little closer and you see the bowl of fruit. And if you get really close, so close that the docent says, hey, please step back. <laughs> You're about to reach for that apple because it's so luscious looking. And then you realize there's no apple there. It's just a bunch of threads tied in knots in a colorful display depicting an apple. Well, our life is just like that we have the narrative of our life. You know, we, I could ask any one of you, how are you doing? Who are you? And you could begin anywhere and start talking endlessly about who you think you are. I was born here, I did this, I went to school, I'm married, I'm not, I got this job, I got this career, I like this, I don't like that. It's just on and on and on and on and on. And it creates the illusion that there's actually somebody there. Right? Don't we all believe that there's somebody here? Yes. Okay. Why? Because we've taken, we've taken all the threads, all the knots, all the colorful appearances in our life and woven them into this story, the story of me. But actually, 
as we begin to pay attention moment to moment of what's being experienced, we see that it's just colors and flavors. And, you know, here's a moment of liking and a moment of fear and a moment of joy and a thought about the future and a memory of the past and a perception of something pleasant and a hope for something, you know, to be better and this and that. But we've woven them together so skillfully that we've wrapped ourselves in the cocoon of the narrative of our life. Well, if you pay attention closely enough, you'll begin to unravel, untie all those knots and unravel the tapestry and see that the story of your life is just pixels of information. Why do we do that? What's the benefit of that? In the story of your life, is there any suffering? Hello? Of course. I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, I'm, you know, I like this, I don't like that, you know, sometimes I'm victimized and I should be entitled to, and this, you know, and it goes on and on, you know, ad nauseum, until we look and see what's actually going on there. We're just getting identified with these momentary experiences thinking that they're who we are, who I am. We're not. Those conditions, just like much of what you experience today, have arisen due to causes and conditions outside of your control, and a lot of it is something you wouldn't even want to experience anyway. Right? And yet, now we have a memory of it. And every time we think of it, we weave this memory back into the story of our life. And it's, it's, it's this thick carpet of the narrative that keeps us suffering. If we can see through the illusion of the narrative, we can experience everything that we experience, but not identify with it and not suffer because of it. That's why we pay attention to moment-by-moment experiences, to disassemble the narrative that causes so much suffering. Third right view, skillful view of meditation is that the object that is known in every moment, now remember, in every moment something is being known. The object that's being known can be anything. In fact, everything you've ever known is an object of of the mind. Every sight, every sound, every thought, every memory, every sensation in the body, every emotion in the mind, every plan, every strategy, everything you've ever experienced, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, whether it's very gross and painful and heavy and dense, or very subtle and spiritual and light and heavenly. It's just another object being known. These objects arise sometimes in the form of physical sensations, pretty tangible. You can locate them in the body. Or moods in the mind, which can be pretty intense and noticeable, but hard to know where they are in the mind, or thoughts which sometimes seem very compelling and seem to be so powerful and yet you can't really hold it. They come and go 
randomly. And sometimes our intention, you know, the intention to be mindful, that's, that's a pretty solid intention. That's a pretty solid mental phenomena. Has a life of its own, not under our control. Whatever it is that we have known, the greatest love, the scariest fear, the deepest depression, the most exhilarating spiritual goody, whatever it is, it's just, well, something else being known. We make a lot of pleasant and unpleasant things because they seem to tell us how we're doing. Pleasant things seem to say, you're doing good, keep going. Unpleasant experiences seem to say, whoa, you're really barking up a wrong tree, back up, turn around, go back, stop. And yet, we can't pick and choose pleasant and unpleasant in our life. Things happen. That's it. Things just happen. No matter how many vitamins we take and how much exercise we do and how much aerobics we do and how much, how low our cholesterol number and how, you know what? It's still painful to have a body. <laughs> you know, it is. It just is. That's the nature of the body. Okay. All of these objects, everything that is known, has what we call, or what is called, its own unique flavor. You know, when you feel the in-breath, it feels like this. When you feel the out-breath, it feels like that. They're different, right? When you feel pain in the body, that's very different feeling, sensation, than when you feel the pleasantness of food, you know, when you eat. Tasting has a different qualitative experience than hearing a sound. Okay? So each experience, each object that you've known has its own flavor. Our awareness practice is to know these flavors, to really taste for ourselves, not just to imagine what looking at the sunset's like, but to actually feel what the feeling of observing the sunset is like, or what to you know, when you go through the lunch line. Not just to imagine that you're eating chili with cream cheese, or whatever that was, but to actually know the difference between the taste and texture of beans and lettuce. Because they each have their own flavor, right? They each have their own tactile and sensory flavor. All of our experience has its own flavor. All of the mental states, they're different. Desire is different than fear. Fear is different than depression. Depression is different than impatience. Patience is different than anxiety. Joy is different than bliss. Bliss is different than happiness. Happiness is different than peace. Peace is different than... Okay. So the challenge for us is to taste each moment's experience. That's all. We just want to taste the experience with the mind. Because that's where life happens. There's more I could say, if you believe it or not, about right view. <laughs> but I want to get on to the other yogi jobs because <laughs> they're also important. Understanding why we practice, what the benefit of practice is, 
what's going on in the mind and body, the nature of the mind and body, the value of insight, is important so that we practice correctly and we can practice with confidence. Practice is to be aware. The practice is to cultivate awareness. Now, there's a big difference between, for example, being angry, thinking about your anger, and being aware of anger. They're huge, huge difference. If we're just angry, caught up in anger, we don't know that we're angry, or maybe we know we're angry, but we're just enraged, inflamed, not very clear about what's going on. When we, when we get a little bit of awareness of it, we can recount the story of why we're angry and how justified we are to be angry and how bad that other person is, and, uh, the blame game. But that's not, neither one of those is being mindfully aware. Mindfully aware is to cultivate the capacity to recognize the quality of anger and all of its sub-qualities, sub if you will, as they occur. It's not just the package, like, I was so angry for two hours. No, you weren't. Never angry for two hours. Can't possibly be it. Well, how about two days <laughs> or two minutes? Not even for two minutes. Because there's so much going on in the experience of anger or love or joy or fear or anxiety or depression. It's just infinite things occurring moment to moment. And so when we clump them all together into kind of a concept, we miss the real flavor of the experience. So awareness, the work of Awareness is to remember to recognize the flavor of what this experience is, what's going on as it occurs. Now you don't have, I mean, is that hard? <laughs> is that hard to do? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I remember hearing people, different teachers talk about mindfulness and awareness, and it took forever to really get a clear understanding in my own experience of what awareness was, or what mindfulness was. What's the difference between being just kind of aware and really mindfully aware? You know, if you walk down, if you, you get down to Barrie and you see somebody on the street and you just ask them, are you aware that you're walking on the street? I mean, they might look at you like you're a nut, but if you really ask them, what are you experiencing as you walk down the street? they'd be hard-pressed to tell you anything that they are experiencing directly, other than their thoughts. Really. So, we may use the word awareness, yeah, I'm aware, in a very general, colloquial sense, or we can cultivate awareness and really understand how powerful it is. Cultivating awareness is the willingness to, to just acknowledge this is the way it is for me for now. 
We don't have to explain it. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to make it better. We don't have to somehow elaborate on it. We don't have to know its significance. We don't have to know anything else about it. We don't have to fix it, figure it out, explain it. We don't have to have an agenda for it. We just have to taste it and know that's what we're tasting. It's helpful to recognize, if you can recognize what it is that you're aware of. But sometimes, you know, things are pretty murky. You know, things are in a swirl and you're, you're there, you're present, you're kind of aware of it, but see, it's really hard to put your finger on just what it is that you're aware of. That's okay. Eventually it'll become clear. But we do have to be able to put our mind's finger on the experience of the moment. It's important in the um, observation and the cultivation of awareness to begin to recognize what we call the defilements. And the defilements are states of mind, attitudes of mind, behaviors of mind, misbehaviors of mind really, uh, that cause us suffering. They make us feel anxious or unfulfilled or frustrated, disappointed, depressed, tired, impatient. They come. I'm sure even today you could get a, compile a pretty good catalog of you know, tormenting states of mind. It's important to understand that your awareness of unwholesome states of mind is good practice. It's good. If they're there, we want to recognize them. We want to be aware of them as they occur. Because if we're not, then we're acting them out. We're stuffing them. We're hiding from them. We're denying them. We're minimizing them. Whatever it is, we're not actually openly being aware of them and dealing with them. So if you're noticing a lot of sleepiness, frustration, disappointment, confusion, bewilderment, impatience, good. That means you're being really mindful of them. But they're unpleasant, aren't they? They're so unpleasant, all of them, that it's just like we, we don't like them. We want to get rid of them. That's a powerful insight, if you could understand it. When things are unpleasant, when the experience, the object that we are aware of is unpleasant, we don't like it. Did you ever have a very pleasant object that you didn't like? Well, that's not natural. That's not in the nature of the mind. But did you ever have an unpleasant object that you didn't like? That, that you, did you ever have an unpleasant object that you didn't like? No. That is equally the nature of conditioning. Think about it. Okay, in making plans for the future, did you ever make plans for somebody else without including yourself? Not often. We don't make plans for other people. Did you ever make plans for the future to do something and build in all of the pain and frustration and disappointment that it's going to involve? No. And yet, it happens all the time. Right? This is, the, this, is what we, this is what we learn. This is what we learn about the nature of planning. This is what we learn about the nature of unpleasantness. This is what we learn about the, about the nature of pleasantness, if we pay attention. All this, all this knowledge, all these facts are facing us all the time. We're seeing them. We're experiencing them. And yet we live in denial of them because 
we haven't really been mindful of them as they occurred. So we don't have to look for spiritual experiences here. We don't have to look for anything subtle, anything exotic, anything really elaborate or Buddhist or, or anything. All we have to do is pay attention to the most ordinary, the most mundane, the most repetitive experiences that we have day in and day out. Because all the lessons of liberation and bondage are right there. If you were planning today, there's valuable lessons in just a knowing that planning is happening when it occurs. And whatever emotion you felt today, just being with it for as long as it's there will tell you something or show you something that you may not yet know. But if you're busy trying to create some spiritual experience or some exotic experience or something you read about in Jack's book, or you know, it's like, that's not the practice. So really look to your practice in developing awareness. What is it you're trying to do in, in paying attention and develop awareness, really? Are you trying to make something happen? Are you trying to get rid of something that's happening? Are you even aware of what's happening? And is it okay? Just ask yourself these questions. And just asking yourself questions like that will encourage you, will arouse awareness itself. What am I aware of right now? Is it pleasant? Well, to know, to be able to answer that question, you have to be aware of what your experience is and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So sometimes this kind of inquiry of just asking questions is a powerful support for being aware. The third job of a yogi, when we have right view of practice and we're practicing with the right understanding, intelligently, and we are being, we're able to be aware of momentary experience. The third job is to sustain that awareness as continuously as possible. So from the time we wake up, you know, the simplest thing, you roll over, reach for the clock and look at it. Start there. Reaching, looking, seeing, ugh. Okay, time to get up. Or you hear the bell. Maybe you didn't reach for the clock. You heard the bell, the wake-up bell. Okay, hearing. That means I've got to get up now. Okay. As ordinary as that is, pay attention to that. Be as continuously aware of the most ordinary, mundane, repetitive or recurring experiences because that's where most of life happens. Most of life is pretty ordinary stuff. But because we dismiss it as being insignificant, we miss the truth of our life. So learning how to sustain the continuity of awareness is essential. One way that we mistakenly try to sustain a continuity is trying too hard. So whenever you find yourself feeling frustrated or struggling or disappointed in your practice, just ask yourself, what is going on? Why am I struggling? 
Why am I frustrated? Why am I disappointed? Why aren't I satisfied? Because it'll, it'll turn your mind to look at what is actually happening. And then just ask yourself, well, I'm disappointed, I'm frustrated. Okay, well, what's happening? And that will reawaken awareness of that experience. There's frustration present, or there's disappointment, or there's a sense of struggle. You don't have to try to get rid of it. We just need to be aware of it. Whatever you have experienced, I mentioned this last night or this morning, whatever you have previously experienced is over. (laughs) It's not happening now. Whatever you were struggling with today, it's gone. Whatever you were frustrated, disappointed with today, or impatient with, it's over, gone. You didn't even have to get rid of it. It just went by itself. The challenge for each of us is to, when we become aware of the present moment's experience, is not to do anything with it. Just to, just to be there. Just to observe it. It will go soon enough. But in the meantime, you can learn something valuable about it and about yourself. This is the path of practice. This gradual acquisition of knowledge of each moment's experience through which we gain understanding and insight into the nature of reality. And in that is the nature of our own suffering and the freedom, freedom from our own suffering. If you're doing anything more than these three jobs, <coughs> reflecting on right view, being aware and trying to sustain it continuously, if you're doing anything more than that, you're doing too much. Let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. When Saito Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. He means we need to practice. Whatever arises in the mind can torment us, or we can be aware of it and be untormented. That's our responsibility. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.